Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Russ Cordell. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. You may have noticed a theme sometimes when I preach. I, I just, I hate the devil so much. I hate the enemy so much and what he does, obviously what he's doing to the world right now, but more so what he does sometimes to us and and the things that happen, the interactions, the people stuff, the flesh stuff. And the enemy battles us and he comes against the things that we're trying to do. And and I just love to expose that. I I like to get a hold of some things sometimes and and just expose the enemy and, and provide myself and you with weapons. Things that by knowledge, by understanding and awareness, we can get ahead of the enemy sometimes and the challenges that we face both interpersonally here in the church and as well as out there and trying to minister to the world around us. And so God had kind of touched my heart on something in a message I heard quite a long time ago and I began to explore and look it up and and get further into this. But I want to talk to you tonight simply about kindness and more specifically brotherly kindness. We're living in a world right now, as I've said many times, that's just engrossed in anger and frustration and incivility and nastiness and and, and so much consternation and anger going back and forth. And we're surrounded by it. And and if you're a person who watches the news, something like 97% of news broadcasts are all just negative and political and all these terrible things are going on and we're surrounded by it. We're bombarded daily with negativity, negativity, negativity. And people out there are so, they're so frustrated and they're so angry. And, 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 and what's ironic is that the, sh- the shield or the shell or the facade that they put on is all about kindness and charity and wonderful things. And if you, if you hear PSAs and you hear people talk, there's, there's millions of charities and there's all these wonderful acts and let's be good to one another. And there's all these messages that's a facade. Because when you really get to the depth of what people are dealing with out there in a large way, it's, it's that anger, it's that frustration, it's that nastiness to one another. I don't have to tell anybody in this room the negative impacts of things like social media. People sit behind screens and say the most nasty, vile, terrible things to one another. Cowards behind screens, hurting people. Do you know that children are committing suicide? because of things that are being said over things like Facebook and all those things. And we use those things, by the way, for very good reasons. We, we take the evil of the world sometimes, and we use it for good. Uh, we use Facebook and social media, and we get people here to the church. We've had good effects of those things. But in the hands of the enemy and the prince and power of the air, it's a deadly thing. And so kindness, I want to expose to you today, maybe in a little different way that you've not heard before, but is a powerful powerful weapon. We know that when we talk about the world versus the church, a very distinctive understanding in the word of God, the world, what it represents. We can't be in the world, or excuse me, we can't be of the world, but we have to be in the world. We know that the world, what it represents when we say the world. And people get confused because scripture says God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But understand, he doesn't love the cosmos of everything that's going on in the world. What he loves is the people, the creation that he put here, that he wants to desperately redeem. God doesn't love the things that humanity is doing in their sin nature. He loves humanity itself. 1 John chapter 5 talks about how the whole world is in wickedness. 1 John chapter 4 contrasts the evil of being of the world versus being of God. 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are issues of the world. James 4, if I'm a friend of the world, it's enmity with God. 2 Peter 2 talks about the pollution in the world. 1 John 2 again says, the world is passing away. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded men's eyes. 1 John 2 and 15 says, love not the world nor the things in the world. It's talking about the cosmos, the, the, the manifestation of what the world creates, not the people, not the humanity. 2 Peter 1 says, to escape the corruption of the world. The word goes on to tell us that whatsoever is of God overcomes the world. It's clear in scripture that we are to be separate and broken and away from the world, the things of the world. But as I just said, we live in a culture, a culture of the world that propagates anger, 
and viciousness and nastiness. And people are frustrated and they're ready to lash out. Everybody wants to sue somebody. Everybody wants to put somebody in their place. Pride takes over. And we, we've had things like road rage. I was down in Florida a couple of months ago for a vacation. And we were driving down this road in, in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. And there was construction on the right-hand side. And out of nowhere, I'm just creeping forward with the rest of the traffic. And out of nowhere, this, this person in this massive SUV comes flying down the right-hand side and tried to take an SUV. Now, these, these are big, big, big trucks, right? Like a pickup truck, SUV type thing. And tried to insert that vehicle into a space about six inches apart from my other vehicle. I mean, this really tried to cram themselves into this thing, slamming on the horn. I saw so many gestures I can't even begin to describe. And we sat in the car going, what are you doing? <laughs> But so angry. I mean, just this, this gal was so viciously angry and shouting and yelling. And she's the one that's trying to put her car into a place that physics just ain't going to allow. And it's just, it ever remarks to me, it's just remarkable how frustrated and bitter and angry people are. And I'm not even going to get into the political scene. My Lord in heaven, you erect the, elect the wrong dude or dudette in this country to president of the United States, and you are in for a fury of anger and viciousness and people tearing each other apart. Why? Because there's just so much of this spirit in the world. And here's the problem. Inevitably, at times, culture, the spirit of the world, will creep into the church. In little bits and little pieces, we can't help it. We're made of flesh. It's what happens, but it does happen at times. But here's the deal. It, it can't be allowed to happen. We cannot take on attributes of the world ever for any reason. You've heard me up here before. I've, I've, I've really admonished the concept of folks, some folks are really actively and politically involved. I understand you're, you're patriots, you're faithful, you believe that it's, gonna, it's what God wants us to do. I understand all that. But I got to ask you this question what good does it do if we've so horribly offended or hurt somebody over a political issue that we never have the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? We can't do that. It's just, it doesn't have a place here. Get behind the curtain, pull the lever, fill in the box, do whatever you have to do, but do not allow the spirit of the world to get a hold of you and convince you that your patriotism is some kind of a virtue. Patriotism, by the way, is not a fruit of the spirit. Competition is not a fruit of the spirit. Passion is not a fruit of the spirit. But these are the ideas that are being forwarded in our, in our world today. Those are virtues in today's America. Well, he's very passionate about what he believes in. So stomp on everybody because he's passionate. No. This is not fruit of the Spirit. I want to take you to 2 Peter chapter 1. Starting right at verse 2. This is Peter. This is the guy with the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The foreman for the job of starting and igniting the first church, the church that Jesus came to plant in the form of the Spirit. The guy that he said that whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That Peter, that guy, said this. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Whew. We got it all. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, 
That means through these promises, you've got a chance to transform this flesh body and get out of this yuck that we're surrounded in that's susceptible to all this terrible stuff. And someday, you have the opportunity to be a partaker of the divine nature. You have a chance to translate. When God returns for his church, when he raptures the church, when the trumpet is sound, through these promises, through what Peter is talking about, you have an opportunity to escape this flesh body and all of this mess that we're talking about that we're surrounded by partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, now here it is, giving all diligence, all your strength, all your, ele- your, your effort, your diligence, add to your faith virtue. How many have heard that they're just people all over the place? All you gotta do is have faith. Martin Luther said, faith, justification by faith, that's all you gotta have, just believe in God. Right? Believe in God and you're saved. Accept the Lord and you're saved. No. Add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and here it is and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity or love. Now in the Greek in that translation there Peter uses the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. We talk about Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, right? Brotherly love, specifically, Philadelphia, was a Greek term. It was the term that the Greeks used in secular life when they were talking about brothers and sisters, mom and dad, brothers and sisters. I'm talking about blood. This was their way of saying that blood is thicker than water. Philadelphia, brotherly love, relational Mom and dad's kids, brothers and sisters, okay? Not to beat that to death, but this was their term. But I want to tell you that at Pentecost, the Christians that took on the washing of remission that Peter gave us, same Peter, same guy, said no. Brotherly love now belongs to those that have been washed in the blood. And so where they said brotherly love was all about blood is thicker than water, the New Testament Christians decided that water made it thicker than blood. And so that's why we refer to one another as brother and sister. We have that Philadelphia. We're supposed to have that Philadelphia, that brotherly love. That's not just a, that brotherly kindness isn't just a niceness. It's not just a general kindness. Brotherly love, Philadelphia, is a deep abiding love. It's a care. It's an up, pers- up close and personal and in your face Abiding, caring love was not what the Greeks originally meant it to be. And therefore, because of the washing regeneration of Jesus' blood, you are my brothers and my sisters. I'm your brother. I'm your sister, your brotherly love. Just like, just like Miranda, Jeff and Shelley had me one day, and you and I are sister and brother. You didn't, they didn't tell you. I certainly didn't get the family genes. I'm the mutant. But because of the washing of the blood, we're brothers and sisters. 1 John 4 and 20 says, can you love God but not your brother? James 2, if a brother or sister is naked and starving, goes on to say what you should do. Do you, do you just say go and be fed? Do you say go and be dressed? No, you love them. Just like it was your own brother or sister. I don't have any brothers and sisters. I'm an only mutant. I should be so lucky to have someone like Miranda as a sister. But I don't, I don't have any. But I have all of you. And for years, for 38 years, I've had awesome brothers and sisters in the Lord that I love very much and have loved me and cared for me. People in this room that have watched over me for decades. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37... We're given the two great commands. Let me actually, you know what? Hold on a second. Let me go back. I'm going to finish up after brotherly, after uh, verse seven, brotherly kindness uh, and brotherly kindness and charity. Back to Second Peter, chapter one, starting at verse eight. He goes on to say this. He says, "For if these things be in you and abound, okay, abound means a lot. You know, you can have some kindness, but he says abound, like really a lot of kindness." And the other virtues, the other pieces, temperance and so forth. They make you, 
that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many know that it's critically important as Christians that we bear fruit? That we're not barren. We're not just here to just eat and sleep. We've got a mission to do. And he promises if you employ these virtues, these pieces, and you abound in them. In other words, it takes effort. You have to activate those things. You have to consciously be temperate with people. You have to consciously express kindness. For some folks, I'm terribly difficult to be kind to. I understand. I'm so sorry about that. But if you abound in kindness, even to people like me, he promises you'll never be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus. Verse 9 says, but he that lacketh these things, now listen, this is terrible, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Do you know what that phrase means right there, forgotten that he was purged? It doesn't mean that mentally up here you went, oh yeah, that's right, I totally forgot I, I got saved once. It means it's like it didn't happen. Do you understand that? It's not a matter of not remember or not remember. It's like it didn't happen. Okay? Verse 10 says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. We love that scripture. We say it all the time. Make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There it is. Do you understand what that just said? If you abound in these things, you extol these virtues and these pieces and extend brotherly kindness, and you're not barren and unfruitful, it opens wide the door for eternity. Anybody here want to go to heaven? I do. But see, the enemy wants to trick us. The enemy wants us to rationalize our feelings and our behaviors. The enemy wants, we're great at rationalizing, by the way. Do you know that the second most powerful human drive is rationalization? There's the first one, but that's why we have brothers and sisters. That's not part of the conversation. We can rationalize anything. And the enemy isn't going to come in and say, you ought to really hate that gal. She's just annoying and and, and blah, 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 blah. What the enemy will do is say, you know, your feelings are really justified. That person's really not nice to you and it's okay that you've done that. It's okay that you feel that way because you've been been unjustly treated. You, You know, you deserve to be treated better than that. And it's okay if you let that go. That's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants you to rationalize that this behavior is okay. That's the culture that's creeping in. And we'll rationalize that away. But that verse 11 says that if we abound in these things, an entrance is ministered unto you into everlasting life. Verse 12 goes on to say this, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. And I believe as as a pastor and as a minister of the word of God, it is my job not only to put you in remembrance, but to put me in remembrance and my family. I need to refresh these things. I need to remember and understand that these virtues, these important things, that brotherly kindness is extremely critical. It doesn't matter how hard life has been. It doesn't matter that somebody accidentally did something and I felt hurt by it. It doesn't, none of that matters to God. What matters is that we're kind and that we're temperate and that we show loving kindness to one another, that brotherly kindness. And I will continue to put us in remembrance and myself. He says on, though ye know them and be established in the present truth, yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. When I read that scripture again, I've read it, I don't know how many times I've read Second Peter, but it stirred me up. And I need to keep reminding myself that every day the enemy tries to creep this stuff in on us. Every day the enemy tries to help us to rationalize feelings and aggression and, and frustration and all those things that come along. That's why passion is not a fruit of the Spirit. Passion is an indulgence in, in emotion. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. 
I started to read to you Matthew 22 and 37 and it goes as this. It says, Jesus said unto him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. You all know this scripture, verse 38. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We've all heard that a million times. I think this is a pretty knowledgeable group here. We've got, we've got a lot of folks here that have probably read that many times. But isn't that wonderful? Love your neighbor. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor. I love my neighbor. I see him all the time. He's across the street. I love that guy. How does he know? Does he know? You know how we put it into action? How we actually get love moving forward so the neighbor knows? Through kindness. An expression of kindness. Simple. You don't have to run over that guy's house. Tracks packed in your pocket, Bible underneath your hand, ready to preach him Acts 2.38. You walk across the street and hand him a plate full of cupcakes or cookies or whatever the case may be. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says that love is kind. Love is kind. It's really the essence of kindness. Kindness in essentiality is love in action. It's funny that when you read, and we'll get to it in just a moment, when you read the fruit of the Spirit, it's kind of down far in the list. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, faithfulness. It's kind of far down in the list, but it's kind of one of the critical ones. It's, it's the action word for all of those other pieces. Because love just in and of itself doesn't transfer. It doesn't travel. Like I said, I can stand on my porch and say I love my neighbor all I want. But unless I have some kind of wheels on that process, unless I have some kind of a action to that, I haven't really loved my neighbor. I have a question for you. This church is wonderful, by the way. Awesome. With visitors, unbelievers, new people that come in. I don't know a church, by the way, that's better at that than we are. We have a phenomenal culture that's created by those two sitting right there. We love people. And I've sat and watched it again and again and again. Every soul that steps in this place are embraced by you and they're entreated by you. I've, so many times I've heard people come back and say, oh, this is the nicest church I've ever been to. These are the, wow, these people are great. This was awesome. Again and again and again. We had our launch pad luncheon a couple of months ago. We had a few new folks come in, some people that are sticking around, and they've really shown that they love it here, and we just haven't quite connected them all the way yet. And so we had this luncheon, and we brought them in, and we treated them like kings and queens. That was our goal. And we had a bunch of leaders. Some of you folks were there to come in and talk about your ministries and the things that you can do. And then we gave them an opportunity to stand up and testify a little bit or say anything they wanted to say. We kind of caught them off guard on the spot. But you, I want you to know, if you weren't there, and I know some of you were, but those people stood up one after another after another. I was blown away. I was just sitting at the table with my salad going, as they stood up and said, oh, we just love this church. We just love it here. Everyone is so kind. They just love us so much. Again and again and again and again. Every person in there, and we're so happy with that. But why is it that sometimes, and here's the question, but why is it sometimes, maybe not necessarily this church, and I'm not focusing on abundant life per se, but why is it that in the church realm, we can sometimes be so unkind to believers? Sometimes. Why is it so easy? And I thought about that for a long time, and I prayed about it. Because I've seen it, I've experienced it. A lot of it's accidental. A lot of it's just frustration, but a lot of it is driven by fear. You say, fear? How does fear drive you to be unkind? You know why? Because we fear other people's differences in what we believe. We fear that that real liberal Christian over there is going to influence some things and rock me off of my, my center where I believe that Christianity should be. And we fear that that ultra-conservative Christian over here is going to enforce in some stuff that's kind of like, I don't want to be strapped down like that guy. Or we fear that some sort of doctrine is going to come in. Or, hey, I know that person believes that you can't have Christmas trees, and I like Christmas trees, and I know they're going to embarrass me, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We do that to one another. 
because we start slicing and dicing up the way that we feel about Christianity and what we've learned and what we're convicted about. And so unkindness sometimes can come from, well, man, I don't like the way Cordell does that. I'm not wearing a tie right now. There could be somebody in this room terribly offended by the fact that I'm preaching from the pulpit without a tie on. I'm using that as a dumb excuse. Or a dumb example, excuse me. I have no excuse except I chose not to wear a tie today. (laughs) But my point is this, is that all of us are in a different place in our experience, whether we like it or not. We call ourselves United Pentecostal Christians. We call ourselves apostolics. We subscribe to the word. But I could probably take an opinion poll on several key doctrinal issues in this room, and I bet you we'd get 20, 30 different versions of what we think this should be all about. And so when we lash out, hey, I don't like how you handled that situation. I don't like what you, you're not doing something about this over here. You're, hey, wait a minute now. It's because we have fear. We have fear that the new pastor coming in might not be like the old pastor. Can I get an amen? Thank you, Jacob. Why? Because it's going to cause change. It's going to force us off of our stand. It's going, to, it's going to threaten that position that we've put in there. And so sometimes we're just unkind to one another accidentally because we're responding in fear. And so what if we are unkind in that way? What happens? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. And I won't go through the whole thing. But it says, essentially, it gives all the pieces. You've heard this at weddings. You've heard it a hundred different times. Maybe I'll go through it. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels and have not charity or love, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Although I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Zero. Charity suffers long and is kind. There's our word for tonight. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It's not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, it's not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity or love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Why does Paul say that to the Corinthians? Because basically what he's saying, if we don't have a life of kindness, this is what happens. Nothing that I say helps anybody. Well, I minister and I preach and I teach and I teach a lesson and I teach a Bible study and I teach at church and I do Bible studies at my house. If you don't have love, if you don't have brotherly kindness, it's worthless. It's void. You have wasted your time and your breath. You might as well just be watching TV. If I don't have a life of kindness, this is what happens. Nothing I know makes a difference. I can read every Bible. I can snap off scriptures like this. I can memorize everything. I can read tons of books. I can have all of this academic knowledge about the Bible and about Jesus Christ. But if I don't have brotherly kindness, I have zero. Do you understand what this is saying? Is that we get ourselves puffed up. Oh, we think we're sharp, we're smart. I've taught Bible studies for 30 years. I've done these great things and I'm gonna keep on teaching and preaching. But if we don't show one another in this church brotherly kindness, that deep abiding, face-to-face, forgiving, enduring, understanding, loving, appreciating, I'm sorry I'm not perfect, abiding brotherly love to one another, all of that knowledge, all of your holiness, all of your perfect dress, all of your perfect verbiage, all of the things that you've gathered up means zero, zip, nothing to God. That's what the man is saying in 1 Corinthians. You show me your talents and your abilities and your experience and your wisdom and your Bible studies and the leagues of people that you've brought to God that you wear as a badge and you show me no brotherly kindness and I show you an empty box. I show you nothing. You're not showed that entrance. If I don't have a life of kindness, brotherly kindness, 
This is what happens. Nothing that I think or believe matters. Well, I think we should wear our shirts buttoned up all the way to the top and we should have our collars buttoned all the way down here and we should say five Hail Marys and we should do this and that, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Whatever you believe, whatever you hold so tightly to that you've got it down, if you don't have brotherly kindness, it's worthless. Here's what happens if you don't have a life of kindness. Your giving makes no difference. I give my time, I give my tithes, my offering, I give to the food pantry, I donate to the poor, I drive down to Milwaukee and I hand out blankets, I do all these wonderful things. But if you don't have charity, if you don't have that brotherly kindness, it's void, God doesn't see it. You see what I'm saying? Those are powerful words, that stirs me. That stirs me to remember and to know that I've got to watch myself. I've got to be on guard. I've got to watch what I rationalize in my feelings and in my approach to people. I make mistakes. You make mistakes. We're in the flesh. But we can't rationalize what we do in that regard. I want to address niceness too, by the way. I hope we all understand after all this diatribe that I just gave you that niceness is not kindness. It's not the same thing. This brotherly kindness I'm talking about goes well beyond being nice. You can be nice to somebody and as soon as they turn around, stick a knife in their back. I've had lots of people do that to me. Smile real big. You ever work at a job with somebody who's like that? Oh, it's so great to see you today, Russ. And you turn your back and you're like, what's going on back there? Niceness is not found in the Bible, by the way. You won't find the word nice in scripture. It's not in any version of the Bible. Not the word nice or niceness. Because this brotherly kindness I'm talking about is not some tepid, timid, frail gesture that you make. Well, it's nice. You can buy somebody a cup of coffee over at the gas station. That's nice. It's not terrible. It's not bad. It's just nice. But it's not brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness is fierce and brave and daring. It's fearless and selfless, and it's never, ever mistaken for nice. People use the word nice when they describe us, but what they're extolling, what's coming out of, what I see in their face and their eyes when they describe you and how you entreat them when they come here, they say nice because that's just a cultural norm, but what they're really saying is, this church is so kind. They just... They just did nice things for me and they, they just took me in and they introduced me to people and they gave me coffee. and the, That's what they say. And it comes out that way. But they say nice. But as I said, kindness is not nice. It's not timid and frail. It's not some little quiet gesture. It's powerful. Niceness is just kindness without any conviction behind it, without any action without any desire to really see that person feel good. You ever, I, just, I used to say all the time, I fail at it fairly often, but in general sense, I just want people to walk away from me feeling better than they did about themselves when they walked up. I really mean that. I really honestly mean that. I fail at it all the time. I understand. I apologize for that. But honestly, I, when I reach out to and I, I shake a hand or say hi or how you doing or put a hand on your shoulder or whatever it is, I really just honestly want you to feel better walking away than you did when you walked up. I really honestly mean that. Why? Because that's how I was brought up in the church. And I like it when I feel that way. Niceness is about being polite and politically correct. Kindness is about doing what is right. We got to watch that part in culture too. That stuff creeps in here. Oh, don't say stuff. There's certain political norms and, and things like that that we, we're starting to avoid here in the church. There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of influence right now when it comes to women in the workplace and equality and all these different things. And if you trip over some of that, in Scripture even, people get upset with you. I've had people approach me. I've read Scripture. They say, well, that's not, that's not right. You can't talk about women like that. <laughs> Word of God. Sorry. But we have to do what's right. I think we ought to avoid telling our children to be nice. I think we ought to tell them specifically the word should be be kind. Because 
inside that word is an intonation of love. Be kind. Be nice. Nice is just functional. Kind is operational. Ephesians 4 and 32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted. And look what's tied into that section. Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Proverbs 11 and 17 says, The merciful man doeth good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Verse 4 in that same in that same line. Oh, I'm sorry, scratch that. Matthew 5 and 7. It says, Blessed are the merciful, for they should obtain mercy. We talk about mercy in terms of kindness. There are times that people do things and they really trip up and make a mistake, and you can just rear back. And you can drop the hammer on them because you know you're justified to do it. But the merciful, the brotherly kindness that comes out says, you know, I could really sock them. I'm not talking about physical hitting, by the way. I'm talking about, you know, verbally lashing out, shaming them, making them feel bad for what they did. You know what I'm talking about? And there are times I've done stupid stuff. I've made mistakes and people had every right in the world to come out and say, Cordell, you big dump. But they've been merciful and they've been kind. You know, I I once worked for a very wealthy man, and he told me one time, he said, I have the greatest level of respect for the man that holds the gun to my head and doesn't pull the trigger. And what he was talking about is, is there's lots of times through life you're going to goof and you're going to make mistakes, and you are very deserving of that bullet. But the person that doesn't pull the trigger is the one who receives the greatest level of respect and appreciation. And so for me... That trigger was held back many times. I pray it continues to be so. And so I have tried to learn that while maybe I feel justified and rationalize, I could pull the trigger, I could let fly, I could let the string out on somebody, but who am I? I'm no good. I'm not perfect. Why do I feel like I deserve to do that? If Jesus can die on a cross, suffer the worst scourging, horrible death that any human being has probably ever experienced, and did absolutely nothing to receive it. How dare I feel justified in executing somebody, right? But see, this is what the enemy wants to do. He wants to drive these types of behaviors. He wants to see this stuff creep into the church. We start eating each other alive. Well, you believe different than I do. You're wrong. Well, I don't like how you said that. Well, you did blah, 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 blah. And rip and shred people and go talk to the other person. Did, you, did I tell you what so-and-so did to me? Blah, blah. See, the enemy wants that stuff going on. He wants us fighting together. He wants to tear the church apart. Why? Because he knows that this church is on the march. We're moving ahead. We've got a foundation that we've laid, that we're loving people. The enemy hates it. Amen. The enemy hates it that when people walk into this church, all of you people embrace them and love them. He can't stand it. He can't stand to see that we're not clicky and that we don't look at that person and well, they smell different. Well, they look different. We don't like them. This church has never done that. As long as I have been here for 20 years in the old church back when I used to visit, I have never seen Abundant Life do that. I have always seen this church embrace people and the enemy hates it. So he knows that the foundation is laid. There's a stronghold that brother and sister Kylie have created in this church that says that every person in this place is going to be loved and appreciated and reached out to. The enemy knows that there's no chance. He's got nothing. This man's been in ministry for 41 years, standing strong in the word of God and creating that culture here. It's not going to happen. He's not going to win. And so what can he do? He can start working on me and you. Oh, okay, let the visitors come. Because right now, they're an unsaved loved one. But someday, they're going to be an unloved saved one. That's what he's waiting for. That's what he wants us to do. But I'm exposing him today. And I'm calling myself out for mistakes that I've made in that regard. And I'm promising you today. And I'm telling you today as I'm bringing it to remembrance, as Peter said in Scripture, and I'll continue to do that as a pastor and a leader and a minister in this church, I'm going to do it for myself. I promise you that I'm going to continue to work on brotherly kindness and embrace you and embrace the people of this church. Why? Because I want that entrance to the kingdom to be opened up for me and for my family and for you. 
He thinks he's going to have his way, but I'm exposing him today. I hope you folks take a hold of this. I hope you get a hold of it and you wrap yourselves around it and understand that I don't care what dumb thing I did, what horrible, stupid mistake I did, and you have every right, you have every purpose, you have every reason and every justification to let the string out on Brother Cordell. But not for my sake, but for your sake. Have mercy. Show brotherly kindness. The Bible has instruction for all that, by the way. You go to a brother. You have ought against him. You go to a brother. You talk to him and you say, hey, man, this, this is really the deal. And here's what I felt about that. And you know what this brother has to do? This brother has to say, hey, listen, I'm really sorry. This brother has to humble himself before you and say, listen, wow, you're absolutely right. Please, please forgive me. What can I do to make this right? There's already stipulation in the word of God for that. I want to talk just briefly about the, about the fruit as I'm wrapping up. I mentioned it earlier. If the armor of God we talk about in Ephesians is primarily defensive, the helmet protects the head, the shield of faith, breastplate, etc., etc. That's a defensive thing. We have one weapon in there, sword of the spirit. I'm trying to share some of that today. But if the armor is primarily defensive, then I contend to you today that the fruit of the Spirit is an arsenal. It's an arsenal because the battle that we face isn't our feelings, it's not about passion, it's not about our convictions, it's not about all those things, it's about the fruit of the Spirit. That's how the Bible says that you will know that we're one of His. That's how the Bible says that we will fight that spiritual battle in our minds because that's where the battle's going on. That's what drives us. It's where the enemy gets inside and he starts working through your brain. That's how rationalization happens. Guess where that happens? Right up here and right here. And so if we begin to employ and look at the fruit of the Spirit as weapons, love is a weapon. Joy is a weapon. Why do you think it says, the joy of the Lord is my strength? The enemy wants to kill your joy. If you're stomping around, man, that cordial really offended me. I can't even believe he's going to be the next pastor. He said this, blah, 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 blah. Your joy is gone. And therefore, your strength is gone. And when your strength is gone, you cannot fight the enemy. So you have to begin to look at the, the, the fruit of the Spirit as weapons. It's an arsenal. Well, Brother Cordell, they're just things. They're just, this is soft love and joy and peace and temperance, all that. Oh, sure. For this present world, for this fleshly world we live in, they're They're nothing. They don't win a battle. You're not going to get into a fist fight and when somebody's punching you in your face, having joy isn't going to help. <laughs> but that's not the battle that we care about. And I don't know when the last time any of you was in a fist fight getting your face punched. So. But every day, every day, every minute of the day from the time that you wake up until the time you go to bed, the devil does not sleep. He does not rest. He doesn't take a vacation. He doesn't sit back and decide not to do things as, as, as focused as we should in our word. He sticks right to his plan. And so we need to do the same thing as well and recognize that the fruit of the spirit is an arsenal. Galatians, arsenal, excuse me, Galatians 5 and 22. I'll just go over. I know you know them. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, Wow, that's a weapon, ain't it? That's a nuclear missile of attack, peace. Folks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the good part here in a second, I promise y'all, looking at me like I'm crazy. Peace, patience, kindness, there it is again, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things, there is no law. You know what that word there is interchangeable with technically in scripture? If you look at the translation, it's not law. That means there's a law against it that says you can't be peaceful. What it's saying is against such, there is no power. There is no power against you if everything that you exhibit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and goodness and kindness. It is absolutely, and here's the best part. I'll skip right over. It is absolutely an arsenal that is unassailable. Do you understand that when you're in love and peace and joy, it's a place of humility. You know that all of this is wrapped around a bubble of humility. All of those pieces come under the concept of humility. And humility is absolutely 100% unassailable. You cannot attack it. The enemy can do nothing with you if you're sharing peace and love and joy. There's nothing he can do. It renders him defenseless. Devil, I'm telling you right now, I'm exposing you. I'm going to give these weapons out. We're going to look at it as a weapon, and we're going to be unassailable. 
The fruit of the Spirit softens hearts. And I know you know and you've run into people that seem to have hardened hearts. Anger, things and frustrations. Life has beat them up. They're bitter. Something bad happened to them. But these, this arsenal of weapons softens their hearts. As it's said in Scripture, turns away wrath. It destroys the works of the enemy. It heals. It strengthens. It's a fear killer. My God, if there's anything that we can do with the fruit of the Spirit that's more important than anything is kill fear in this world. The people out there are terrified of what's happening around them and they live in this false world of everything's okay and if I just go buy a new toy or if I get a bigger house or if I do this and that and it's all wonderful and great until they're laying in bed at night and it's dark and it's quiet and they live in fear. Powerful weapons. And I'm closing with this. Brother Matson, a number of months ago, I appreciate a message that you taught and you talked about Mephibosheth. Everybody in here know who Mephibosheth is? Who can say it 10 times fast? I'm kidding, don't, don't do it. Mephibosheth, if you don't remember, and I'll just refresh it real quickly, I'll go through this whole thing. Found in 2 Samuel chapter nine. King David promised his great friend, Jonathan, that he was gonna protect and care for his house. Now, unfortunately, as you, as you probably recall, Jonathan was killed with his nutto father, Saul. The same guy that chased David like a dog, threw a javelin at him, did all this crazy stuff, and David still promised that he was gonna protect Jonathan's house. Okay? Now, years later, David is king of Israel. And so he inquires about Saul's house. He wants to know what's going on. Is there anybody left? Because if you get into history, they're all killed. They're all die. Saul died. Jonathan died with him. And there's a servant there, and his name is Ziba. And Ziba says to David, he says, well, there's one left. There's this guy named Mephibosheth. Just kidding. Mephibosheth. It's Saul's grandson. It's Jonathan's son. And, uh, and, and so Ziba tells David, well, this guy lives in a place called Lodabar. Okay. Now, Lodabar translates as land with no pasture or nothing. There's, there's two different ways that you can look at it. No pasture or literally, it means nothing. He lives in this terrible place. Well, as it comes out, Mephibosheth, now I curse myself by joking about it, Mephibosheth is crippled because when Saul's house was being attacked and they were coming after him, the, the uh, nursemaid grabbed him in her haste. She was trying to escape with him. She dropped him and busted up his feet and he was crippled as a baby. And so one of the reasons he's living in this Lodabar place, this place with no pasture, this barren land is because that's where they go to send crippled people. He's in this awful place. He's not worth anything. Nobody wants him. And uh, David says, go get him. I want him. Of course, Ziba's King David. You don't want this dude. He's crippled. It's ugly. Ugh. You ever see? It's awful how people react to people that have those challenges in their life. People sometimes people will just repulse at the slightest thing if somebody has a physical challenge, a crippling that happened in their life, and they, and they. It's awful how some people are, and they just because we're not accustomed to seeing things like that. So it's a flesh reaction when we see someone that's terribly crippled up. It's kind of. Hard to look at sometimes, right? I'm just being honest. But some people are really unkind about it. Well, Ziba was being kind of unkind about it. And he, was, he basically said, David, listen, dude, you know, this is gross. You don't want that dude in the palace. The palace is for all the royal special people and all the, you know, this guy's just this crippled dude that lives in the land of nothing. And David says, nope, I made a promise. I want him here. I want you to understand that Ziba is a type of the Holy Spirit. Now we know that David is a type and shadow of Jesus, right? He's of the lineage of Jesus. And David sort of represents that in a lot of ways. God said that David was a man after his own heart. And so in concept, David really represents Jesus. Well, Ziba is a type and shadow of the Holy Ghost. And so he sends him to Lodabar. Lodabar is really a type and shadow of the world or sin, nothing. That ugly place, that place with no pasture, nothing grows there. It's a bad place. Mephibosheth 
is a type of us. Broken, crippled, worthless. Nobody wants us. But the king wants us. And he sent his spirit into the world in the greatest act of kindness to say to you that, you know what? You were part of the king's house. And where the world doesn't want you and you're broken and crippled, I want you. So he goes and gets Mephibosheth. Of course, Mephibosheth doesn't understand. He's shocked. You can read it all in there. But just like when we're baptized in the name of Jesus and our sins are washed away, the Bible says that we take on a white robe. And so David put a robe on him. Doesn't say what color, but he put a robe on him to represent his, his house, his, his kingly nature, his royalty. And he tells Mephibosheth that he's going to restore his grandfather's property and that he is welcome in the palace. And then he says, and you get to eat at my table. And I think Brother Matson pointed it out in his lesson that when somebody sits in a chair and scoots up to the table, you can't really see their broken, tore up, messed up feet anymore. And guess what? They look just like you and me. See, once we eat at the table of the king, we're all the same. Jesus showed us this kindness and we've got to return it to the people around us. The world around us and for goodness sakes, each other. Because we've got all got our cripple pieces. We all have our failings, our ugly stuff. Stuff that the kings out there look at and go, ugh. I don't want that in my house. I don't want that in a palace. But Jesus does. You can stand tonight. Brotherly kindness. Not just regular old kindness. And definitely not niceness. But brotherly kindness is a powerful, powerful weapon the thing with which we can put to action all of the fruit of the Spirit to one another and the people that are around us. I give to you what God has given to me is a weapon that we can use to make sure that one day that entrance to the kingdom is open to us. In Jesus' name, Lord, we're so very thankful, God, for the kindness that you showed us. Lord, I have no worth I have no value. I have no right to stand in this palace. Certainly not at your table. But God, through mercy and grace and kindness, you reached out. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.